Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Well, I trust that everybody had a blessed Thanksgiving day with a happy feast and lots of leftovers. Um, our, ours, our, ours, our, our leftovers are running a little bit low at my house, but that's a good thing. We don't need them forever, so that's a good thing. Um, as I mentioned Wednesday night, um, I love that our parish custom has been to begin our Thanksgiving celebrations with the Eucharist, with the great Thanksgiving on Wednesday night, the night before. Because it always falls at the end of November, Thanksgiving Day is usually just before or just after um, the Sunday next before Advent, which also has some feasting themes. It's a great Sunday to be near Thanksgiving. So on a folk level, which is not at all related to the liturgy itself, uh, that we have the colloquial name for this Sunday, going back to some old customs in England, referring to this as Stir Up Sunday. And the title comes from our collect where we prayed, Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people, that they, plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works, may, be, may by thee be plenteously rewarded through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As we prepare for Advent, it's a good reminder that as, that as Christians, our wills have been freed from bondage to sin so that our choices will indeed result in good works to God's honor and glory. But this colic was also a reminder to our English forebears to start stirring up the traditional Christmas pudding, which apparently takes a long time to properly ferment if you're doing it in that old traditional way. I understand you can buy them a lot easier nowadays, um, <laughs> where you might not have to stir it up for four weeks. I don't know. And I don't know how many of y'all are going to be keeping the traditional Christmas pudding, but it is good to remember that our Advent season with some fasting, some penitence, it always ends with the great feast of the nativity. Um, sometimes it can be good to limit our Advent uh, feasting and hold off a little bit, unlike the way the rest of our culture wants to do. Well, within our gospel reading today, we have St. John's account of the feeding of the multitude, and we also have a focus on feasting. Interestingly, this is not the first time we've read this passage for a Sunday communion this year. Back on the fourth Sunday in Lent, we also read the beginning of John 6 as part of the Sunday of refreshment. So at that point, um, the story was a reminder that the Lenten fast was halfway over and that we could look forward to the Easter feasting. Today's use of that passage does something similar as we head into Advent. So in Advent, we fast and we have penitence as people who are in exile, mourning the sins of the fallen world. But we remember that the king is coming again, just as he came the first time. After we fast, we will feast, commemorating our Lord's first coming and anticipating a second. Now, in traditional iconography or symbolic art, uh, St. John is re represented as the flying eagle in Revelation chapter 4. And that's because St. John's gospel is the most theological of the four. He's the one that brings us to the heights of thinking. He soars to the heights of thinking in his gospel. So we often have several layers of meaning in the text. In today's chapter from John 6, we can see three levels of feasting, three ways that our Lord feeds us. 
maybe more, but we're going to focus on three today. So let's open to our our, uh, passage, John 6, verse 5, page 225 in the prayer book. Let's look at that one more time. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. So the first feeding we have is the feeding of the 5,000 itself. That's the most obvious level of, of feasting, the plain meaning of the text. The people are hungry, and there's not enough money to, uh, to buy food to feed them. It says in the King James, 200 pennyworth. Um, in the Greek, that's 200 days worth of pay. That's two-thirds of a year's salary is what they're talking about. Not $2. With 5,000 men, not including the women and children, Jesus' small band would probably have had a logistical nightmare, even if they did have... 200 days worth of salary to spend on feeding them all. But we know the end of the story, right? Jesus miraculously feeds the multitudes with the five loaves and the two fishes. Jesus provides for the hungry people. Now, on a basic level, this is a reminder that Jesus does indeed provide for us. He does indeed take care of us. In our gospel for Thanksgiving Day, we read the famous portion from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus reminds us that God feeds the sparrows and he clothes the wild, the wildflowers, how much more does God provide for us, whom he loves so much that he sent his son to die for us? Does not the creator of the universe have the power to take care of his people? St. Augustine writes this about our passage today. He writes, Jesus therefore created as God creates. For just as he multiplies the produce of the fields from a few grains... From that same source of power, he multiplied in his hands the five loaves. There was power indeed in the hands of Christ. And those five loaves were like seeds, not indeed committed to the earth, but multiplied by him who made the earth. And so we can indeed trust God for our provision. We all know that prices have been up. Everyone's feeling the economic squeeze, but we can still trust in God. Most everyone I know can attest that when a financial windfall happens, it's often just before unexpected expenses uh, pop up. I recall the time that I received a very large honorarium for a funeral, much larger than I I expect or has really ever happened (laughs) before or since. Well, my car breaks down at the graveyard, not 10 minutes after I had been handed the check. (laughs) And wouldn't you know it, the cost to repair was almost exactly the amount of the honorarium. 
it's almost we could say that God was providing exactly what I needed at the time, right? The great 4th century poet, St. Ephraim the Syrian, he observes this. Jesus did not multiply the bread in accordance with his power to multiply it, but in accordance with what was sufficient for those eating it. His miracle, therefore, was not measured in accordance with his power, but was measured rather in accordance with the hunger of those who were hungry. Jesus could have made a whole lot more bread than he did, but he did what was necessary to feed those people. So we can trust our Lord to provide for our needs one way or the other. As we read Wednesday night, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Be not therefore anxious for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now the second level of feasting in today's gospel reading is the feeding on God's word. Among both the fathers and the reformers, it's very common to see a parallel between the kinds of food in our gospel, so the barley loaves specifically, the fish on the other hand, so a parallel between the kinds of food and the kinds of scripture we find in our Bibles. Take, for example, this, write, this, uh, this writing from St. Cyril. This is St. Cyril of Alexandria. He says this, The five barley loaves signify the five books of Moses, that is, the whole law, which gives, as it were, a coarser type of food. A barley loaf is not a fluffy piece of Wonder Bread. It's a pretty coarse bread. But the fish, St. Cyril says, signify the good food attained through the fishermen, that is, the more delicate books of Christ's disciples. With the latter, there are two distinct types, the preaching of the apostles, so that's what we would call the epistles, right? And the proclamation of the evangelists, which we would call the gospels, they shine forth among us. Similarly, St. Augustine, commenting on how barley has a very tough husk and a soft kernel, he notes that the Old Testament contains difficult a difficult exterior when we look at the demands of the law, but it has a delicious core in its moral principles and its pictures of Christ. And concluding that, St. Augustine writes, For the things that it was carrying when kept shut were a burden, but when opened were food. So we see Jesus feeding the people super abundantly on both the Old and the New Testaments, on both the law and the gospel. Just as the people were hungry for food, so we are hungry for God's word. We need to hear from the Lord in the entirety of the scriptures. Later on in John 6, our Lord compares himself to the manna in the wilderness, which reminds us of Moses pointing to the reason behind the manna. Moses writes that God gave manna, quote, that God might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And Jesus, of course, quotes this passage, this very verse, to the devil when the devil tempts him after our Lord's 40-day fast in the wilderness. So as important as as food, clothing, and all the other necessities of life are, what we need most of all is to hear God, hear from God in his word. Now at the end of our reading, after Jesus has distributed the five loaves and two fish so that the entire multitude is fed, the disciples gather the 12 12 baskets full of leftovers. And many commentators throughout the centuries have seen the 12 baskets as representing the 12 disciples who in turn represent the church. 
So, so what we see is that God's word is both distributed by the church and gathered by the church. It's through the apostles' teaching continued in the church that we are given God's word. And it's the church that gathers together God's people and feeds them spiritually on that very word. That's why we're here today. May we never forget that we are here to administer God's word and sacrament for God's glory, for the spread of his kingdom, and for the strengthening of his people. This then brings us to the third feast in our passage. The third way that Jesus feeds us is illustrated in today's gospel, the sacrament of his body and blood. To really see this aspect of the story, we need to go forward a little bit in the chapter. Um, and, and in fact, this, the passage I'm about to read was our morning prayer reading on Thanksgiving Day. So again, we see this continuation from Thanksgiving today. So let's go to John 6, verse 30. They therefore said unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. And we skip down to verse 48. We read, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And this is pretty explicit Eucharistic language here. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, we do see hints of the sacrament of the table, but here is something much more clear. In the sacrament, Jesus feeds us with himself. And the feeding of the multitude was there to point to that truth that Jesus would later unpack in that same chapter of John's Gospel. So here's a progression. We are fed with food, with those basic needs, we are fed with God's word in the scriptures, and then we are fed by God's word made flesh, who is indeed God himself. With apologies to Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs and developmental psychology, we see here St. John's account of the gospel's hierarchy of needs. We see what is most important is fellowship with God himself. St. John Chrysostom writes this, I fed your bodies, Jesus says, so that after this you, may, you might seek that other food that endures, which nourishes the soul. But you, but you run right back to that food that is temporal. Therefore you do not understand that I led you not to this imperfect food, but to that which is mouthed not by the body, but in the soul. And then he continues on later on in that, in that quote. They still thought that the bread was something material, and they yet expected to satisfy their appetites, and so they quickly ran to him. And what does Christ do? Leading them little by little, he says, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus gave them the bread um, in the feeding of the 5,000 to lead them to the greater bread that is he himself. So here we have the ultimate feast, feeding on our Lord himself. God's provision is good, he takes care of us because he loves us. 
But he takes care of us on, on an even deeper level by feeding us with his word and ultimately with his son. So as we move forward to our sacramental feast in the service, let's close with an, let's close with an ancient prayer found in the Didache. We give you thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Just as this broken bread was scattered upon the mountain and then was gathered together and become one, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.